0: And father, as we come to hear your word, I pray that you would strengthen us by it. Thank you for every person here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to introduce to those of you who don't know my father-in-law. This is Pastor Reverend Doug Helms. I call him Dad. And uh, Beth's father, of course. And uh, his wife, my mother-in-law, is here, Selah, as well. So Ransom and Zoe are very excited to see Grandma and Grandpa. So, uh, and he's going to bring the word for us today. I'd like to bring you greetings from Rock Creek Baptist Church in Crowley, Texas. We have a, a guest speaker there this morning, a Mississippi boy named Matt Munlin. I think you know him. And I'm grateful to be here today, and uh, always good to see Beth and Joshua, and especially Ransom and Zoe. So... Um, just a couple of months ago, I finished preaching through the Book of Romans at Rock Creek. It was a five-year ordeal. <laughs> this is one of the last sermons that I preached on the Book of Romans, and it was, uh, was well-received and um, truth from kind of an unlikely place. Um, there, turn with me to Romans chapter 16. I think you'll see what I'm talking about. There are two sections here at the end of Romans that we might call personal greetings. And the first is uh, verses uh, 3 through 16, where Paul and his companions are are greeting individual saints who live in Rome, where this letter is going to. And so it sounds something like this, uh, beginning in verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who's worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow workers. So that's, that's just kind of a taste of that. There are several names there. And so what you have in this first greeting are uh, Paul and his companions greeting individual saints who live in Rome. And uh, well, he's basically saying, say hi to so-and-so. Tell so-and-so that we're thinking about them, praying for them. But then uh, this second section is, uh, is verses 21 through 23, and the focus is on a group of individuals who are with Paul as he's finishing up this writing. And they, he's saying, those who are with me also send you their greeting. So look at our text. This is uh, Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is the host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greets you. So right now you're thinking, ha, 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 if I had any trouble going to sleep last night, this morning will be no problem at all. Because you're wondering, what in the world can uh, can anyone say from these, this list of these names? Basically what we see here, based on some other scriptures in the New Testament, is we get a taste of what personal relationships were like in the early church and what we can learn from those for us in our friendships and our relationships in the body. So these these ought to uh, be valuable sections to us because we can learn a lot. We need a little bit of background here to help us to see what's going on. You notice a couple of names that uh, might uh, stir a little bit of curiosity in verse 22, there's the mention of the scribe, or uh, the, as the scholars say, the amanuensis, who uh, who uh, helped Paul pen the letter, and his name is Tertius. Uh, it ne- it means literally number three. This is number three who's writing this letter. And then notice in uh, verse 23, the last name mentioned in that section. Quartus. What does quartus sound like? sounds like a quart of milk. What, what is a quart of milk? It's a fourth of a gallon. What's a quarter? It's a fourth of a dollar. And so quartus literally means number four. So, uh, so what we have here is Tertius, Tertius and Quartus are slaves in the household of Gaius. These are not their names, these are their titles, number three boy and number four boy. Donald Gray Barnhouse is helpful here. This uh, He wrote this some 75 years ago, and he recalls a trip to China that he made back in those days where he was hosted in a beautiful home with a large number of servants. And one of those servants spoke English impeccably and he seemed to be the chief administrator in the house he's the boss he seemed to run everything and the host of this great house turned to barnhouse and he said uh the, that is the probably the best number one boy in all of china and barnhouse what, said what do you what do you mean number one boy and he said the number one boy in china is an institution he's a uh, He's in charge of everything. He hires other servants. He supervises the marketing. You never find him carrying a package. That would be done by number two or number three or number four. Uh, he's uh, basically the English gentleman's gentleman plus a nurse and a housekeeper and many other things. And the ambition of the third boy is to become the second boy. And the ambition of the second boy is to become number one boy in the house. And so this is the same kind of system that they had in Rome in Paul's day. Wealthy Roman house, households had servants whose names were Primus and Segundus and Tertius and Quartus and Quintus. So here in our text... Number three and number four of the household of Gaius are present when Paul is writing, putting the finishing touches on this magnificent letter to the Romans. So let's look at this again. Verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. So we know a little bit about Timothy. He's the first one who's mentioned in this list, and Paul calls him a fellow worker. Timothy is Paul's young protege. Timothy's been a part of Paul's work since he was brought on board at Lystra on Paul's second missionary journey. Timothy has a Greek father, But his mother is Jewish, which makes him Jewish as well, because uh, the lineage is passed on through the the mother in the Hebrew thinking. So Timothy is deeply committed to the Lord Jesus. He's deeply committed to the progress of the gospel. Listen to what Paul says about him. This is in uh, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For Listen to what he says about this young man. I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with his father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him to you soon. He said, he's been with me from the beginning. He's uh, he's like a son to me. Ministry can be very, very difficult. There are people who let you down. Paul's ministry was was exceptionally difficult. So many people who said that they would be there or that they would do this or that they would do that who ended up not fulfilling their covenant, but not Timothy. Timothy's faithful. So you can see that he's not just a co-worker with Paul. He's like a son. They are close. And then there are three others who are probably fellow Jews. Look at again at verse, uh, verse 21. Look at these names. Um, Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater. What does he call them? Kinsmen, that's right. That's usually how he referred to fellow Jews. And you get this from uh, back in chapter 9. Turn back to Romans chapter 9. And uh, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's talking about the Israelites he says they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. I would willingly go to hell if they would if they would know the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jews are his kinsmen. So he refers to these three here in verse 21 as his kinsmen. They are fellow Jews. They're probably pastors of, of churches or leaders in other churches in the area. And earlier in the book of Romans in chapter 15, he He mentions that he and some others will go to Jerusalem to minister to the suffering saints there. These brothers are probably going with him on that trip. And then there's the mention of the secretary who helped Paul write the letter. Again, verse 22. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. We've already met Tertius. He's number three. He's Paul's secretary, his amanuensis, and uh, this is the normal pattern for Paul. He, he did not write the letters out with his own hand. There were instances like in 1 Corinthians 16 where he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, meaning this little section, I will write that with my own hand. But usually the rest of the letter was written by a scribe, and so that's tertius. Seems like Tertius has been with Paul since chapter one, because he says, "I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord." He's been there since chapter one, verse one of this great book of Romans. Now, how did this happen? Maybe Paul is looking around and he wants to uh, wants anyone who wants to to send a word of greeting. So he says. Anyone want to say something? And so Tertius just keeps writing and he writes his own name in there. I, Tertius, wrote this letter. Maybe Paul turns to him and he says, Tertius, you've been with us in this. do Do you want to say anything? We don't know exactly how it happened, but here he is. Number three boy in the house of Gaius mentioned in the letter of Paul to the Romans. What's interesting is the way he writes this greeting. The Greek text says, Greet you, I, Tertius, the one writing this epistle, in the Lord. That's how it's said literally. Some Bible scholars think that he's saying, I, Tertius, greet you, the one who wrote this epistle, in the Lord. In other words, he didn't just write this epistle, he wrote this epistle in the Lord. He's emphasizing that. As Leon Morris says, it's not a a mechanical project to him, but a piece of service to Jesus Christ. He's in on this. He's emotionally and spiritually invested in this work. He's not a passive tool with no emotional connection. And maybe it didn't even start that way, but as Paul begins to talk about uh, the sin of fallen mankind in chapter 1, and how all have sinned and fallen short of the gospel, or the the glory of God. And then he gets in chapter 4 where he, he talks about being saved by grace through faith and in, and uh, and so on. As he warms into the letter, I'm sure that Tertius sees the beauty and he feels the power and the overwhelming love of God that flows from the heart of this man, Paul. And he falls in love with the Lord Jesus as he's writing this letter. And at some point, he realizes that this is the great privilege of his life to serve the Lord Jesus as the number three boy in the house of Gaius writing out this letter from the Apostle Paul, from God to the church at Rome. And he would not have had this. Think about this. We think about slavery in our day. And it's a terrible institution. We're grateful that it's dead and gone in our country. And, and hopefully more and more all over the world. But think about this. He would not have had this privilege if he had not been number three boy in the household of Gaius. And so the application here, I, I wonder if you see your work this way, whatever it is. It's not just something to help you bring home the bacon, but this is a key way that you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Not, not just... Uh, as you are able to support the preaching with your tithes and offerings, but as a way that you beautify the gospel of Jesus Christ, the way you adorn the gospel, by the way you carry out your job, by the way you fulfill your calling, whatever it is. Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 6, if you would. Listen to what Paul says to the working man. Verse five, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Think about that. When you, when you go to work uh, tomorrow, you have a job that you go to, you're not serving uh, your employer primarily, primarily you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse six, not by... The way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service. Listen to the way he talks about your work as rendering service to God. Whatever you do. Rendering service with a, a good will. As to the Lord, not to man. Verse 8 knowing that whatever good anyone does, this will he receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Whatever you do, he says, whatever your calling is, when you fulfill it in, in a way that's worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be a reward for that. I wonder if you're waiting for that. I wonder if you look for that. He has a reward for those who work diligently and skillfully at whatever he's called them to. Not just the preacher and the evangelist, but for the engineer who does his job well. Not just for the missionary, but for the one who greets the public every day with a smile and a product that he's not ashamed of. And this is not a stretch because Paul often talks about making the most of your calling wherever it is. And we don't have time to look at this. 1 first Corinthians chapter seven He basically says, whatever thing you were doing when you came to faith in Christ, stay there and live out your calling right there. It's the way you glorify God. Now that you're saved, you're you're a better carpenter than you were before, and people see that. Now that you know the Lord Jesus, you're a better homemaker. Now that you... Know Christ and uh, His saving grace, you're a better teacher. People see that. It makes a difference. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And then look again at verse 23. We'll move on from that point. Verse 23, Gaius who is the host to me and to the whole church, greets you. So here's Gaius. He's a, he's a wealthy man in Corinth. And notice that he doesn't just host Paul. He hosts the entire church family. The church meets in his home. And uh, we know that, there's, that he had to be wealthy because he had at least four slaves, maybe more. He's probably a Roman. And we hear of him in another one of Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians Of chapter 1, so I want to turn there and read that to you. Um, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 14 through 17. I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius. Paul probably baptized Gaius because he was one of the first converts. It was not his practice to baptize. It was his practice to preach. He had other people who worked with him who did the baptizing. But he baptized Gaius because he was one of the first converts. Gaius is also mentioned probably in Acts chapter 18. I won't go there. But what I want you to do is think about this church that met in his home. This is a wealthy man's home. And most of the time when we think about house churches in the early days of the church, we think about our homes. And we think about four or five families gathered around a coffee table with the Bible open, worshiping the Lord. That's a beautiful picture. But Gaius' home is probably not like your home. (laughs) Not like my home. Gaius' home, Gaius is a wealthy man. And um, archaeologists have looked at these homes of the wealthy patrons in these large cities. And, and they had rooms that were large enough to house one or two hundred people at a time. So that's not to say that a church can't, can't meet in your living room if you're starting off or something like that. But it's good to clear away the misconceptions about the early church. One thing that we do know from this text is that God saves all kinds of people. He saves the rich as well as the poor. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians that there are not many who are rich, not many noble, not many wise by this world's standards, but there are some. Some wealthy men saved by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Gaius is one of those. And uh, this wealthy nobleman uses what he has for the progress of the gospel. He sees to it that this steadily growing church has a place to meet. Praise the Lord for men like Gaius. And then there's uh, Erastus in verse 23. He's the city treasurer. He's probably a friend of Gaius. Uh, Probably not one of Paul's traveling companions because he's, he's wedded to this city. He has to be there to fulfill his calling. And uh, his responsibilities in Corinth keep him busy. It appears that Erastus was an important man in Corinth because archaeologists have unearthed uh, 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 an inscription. And it's alongside of a piece of a sidewalk in ancient Corinth. And it says, "'Erastus, in return for his aedile ship, laid this pavement at his own expense.'" We don't know what an aedile was, but, um, but he's a public official, and he's a good and effective public official, one who invests even his own money for the welfare of the city. Think about this. Corinth is not exactly Eden. This is, this is not Jerusalem. This is a godless place. And, and this godly man invests his life in this godly place for the glory of God and for the, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of what, um, what Jeremiah wrote to the, the exiles in Babylon that you don't have to turn here, but this is Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning in verse four. And, uh, Jeremiah is thinking about these Israelites who'd been, uh, transported to Babylon, uh, and and they want to they want to come home but listen to what he says he says thus says the lord of hosts the god of israel to all the exiles whom i have sent into exile from jerusalem to babylon you know we're exiles here this is a message for us he says build houses and live in them plant gardens and eat their produce take wives and have sons and daughters take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But listen to this. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And that is what this man, um, Erastus, is doing. He's investing. He's seeking the welfare of the city where he is. He's also a busy man because this title that we have in the inscription is not the same that we have in our text. Our text says that he was a city treasurer. So this man probably had two two public offices. So he's a busy man. And what this means is that it's not wrong for someone who comes to faith in Christ to hold public office. Uh, Christians should be careful about public office because... Uh, it's easy to compromise your convictions and, and sully the witness of Christ. But it doesn't have to be that way. You, you know this because of people in the, in the Old Testament, other places in the, in the Scriptures. Think of Joseph, the son of uh, Jacob. Joseph, the prince of Egypt. Here's a godly man who didn't compromise. Think of, of Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They didn't compromise. They didn't cave in. And so um, the Christian statesman can maintain his witness if, if he's there for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Erastus is one of those men. And again, we see that God saves all kinds of people. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is filled with all different kinds of people. He saves the rich and the poor. He saves the slave and the free. The church of the Lord Jesus is home to the humble helper and the public official and every person in between those two. And then there's one more greeting. This is the last part of verse 23. Look at this. Back in Romans chapter 16. And our brother Quartus greets you. So of all the men gathered around Paul as he finishes this great letter to the Romans, Quartus is the least one in the pecking order He's the number one, uh, number four boy in the household of Gaius. He's way down the line. And yet the Apostle Paul, the great man of the faith, the Apostle Paul mentions him to the brothers and sisters in Rome. He didn't leave anybody out of the picture. And wherever Paul worked, it was this way. This is how it says it in the Greek text. Greets you Erastus the treasurer of the city, and Quartus, a brother. So here they are, side by side, the rich and the poor, the power brokers of the city, and the number four boy in the household of Gaius. Who does this? Who has the power to bring these kinds of people together and to knit them together into one body? Who does that? Nobody. The Lord Jesus does that. This is one of the great glories of of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may say, well, I've never seen that. When I go to church, I see cliques. Wherever we see that, we need to repent and repair. All of us need to do whatever we can to cross the barriers that would divide us out in the world. So I think you can see how relevant this is for our day. There are a few lessons that we can learn from this. First, um, Christian fellowship in the early days was bigger than any of the social factors that might have previously divided the people in the body. Christian fellowship was huge. It was bigger than anything else in the picture. It's bigger than race. It's bigger than social standing. It's bigger than your view of COVID-19. Christ has, his, has power to redeem, power to save from sin, power to reconcile differing social strata of people. And that's the thing that dominates this picture here at the end of the book of Romans. To these early Christians, nothing seemed to matter but the common bond that they had in Christ. Barnhouse says it well. It was an actual oneness, absolutely above and beyond all human distinctions. Nothing short of this could have moved the simple number four slave, Quartus, to ask Paul to send his love to the unknown brothers across the sea. And I might add to that, nothing short of this would have moved such an important person as the Apostle Paul to comply with that request from a lowly man like Quartus. So this is huge. The oneness that Christians shared in Christ began to soften how a man treated his fellow travelers. It began to soften how a husband treated his wife. It began to soften how an employer or a slaveholder treated his slaves. Remember what Paul says in uh, Ephesians chapter 6. I think we read this just a little bit ago. Um, you read it again. Ephesians 6, verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ that made men respect their fellow men. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ that civilized the Roman Empire. This is huge. And as a side note, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that caused men to treat women with respect and dignity. Feminism doesn't know that. They don't get that. Remember what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7. Listen to this. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. I want you to notice that that men are not just to love their wives, they're to honor their wives. They're to treat their wives as their friends and companions. They're co-heirs with their wives of the grace of life. That was a big change for women at that time, when women were regarded more the property of the man than as friends and partners in marriage. And in the New Testament, there's definitely an order of authority, but the Lord Jesus raised the standard of women and raised the standard of slaves. Or the standing of women and the standing of slaves. The Gospel of Jesus Christ was the biggest thing in the room. And whenever the body of Christ was present, those distinctions were abolished. It should be that way today. And when we read this gospel that Paul's been preaching since chapter 1, this gospel that he's been unpacking for 16 chapters, and when we give it its rightful weight and rightful place, the things that divide Christians will fade away into insignificance. Again, I think you can see how relevant this is uh, during this time of racial unrest the gospel of jesus christ when we give it its rightful place in our relationship can bridge gaps that no one else can bridge got to focus on him the second thing that we see is uh that the body of christ in the body of christ everyone has a calling we've already touched on this a little bit it's not just the preacher or the missionary who has a calling but so does the city worker and uh the employers and the employees. So here are these Christian workers, Paul, Timothy, Lucius, Jason, Jason, Socipiter, they're about to go to Jerusalem with Paul to represent the churches. Uh, But there's no indication that they are of a higher uh, standing in the eyes of Christ or in Paul's eyes than those who stay behind. So God has other things for other people to do. Now, I want to talk about that, I want to move on to the third lesson that we learn here, and that's uh, the importance of those that the world thinks are unimportant. This is back to Tertius and Quartus. In a secular setting, these men would have played a part in the enterprise, but they would have gotten no credit for it. They would not have been mentioned. Why? Because they were slaves. Because they were someone else's property. Their lives are only important in so much as they serve the greater purpose. But here in this Christian setting, these slaves are important, not just because of their work, but because these are also men for whom Jesus died. These are brothers. These men are part of the family. And, and here's something that we should note. In the New Testament, you see guidelines for how slaves are to interact with their masters. But there's no abolition of slavery in the New Testament. Paul does not command abolition. But what you do see in passages like this that we've just read, and, uh, and then in the book of Philemon, the seeds of abolition are planted. Because the slave is your brother. He has equal standing with you at the foot of the cross. You're a sinner just like he is. You'll answer to the Lord Jesus one day, just like he will. Paul's letter to Philemon was especially important in tearing down the institution of slavery in the West. Here's Onesimus. He's a runaway slave. Paul meets him and leads him to faith in Christ, and now he says, you need to go home. And so Paul writes to his master, Philemon, and encourages him to accept Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother. It's a radical thing for Paul to write. Accept your slave back as a brother? Really? Who does that? Nobody out in the world, but the Lord Jesus does that. The Gospel of Christ does that. Because those who are once under condemnation of a just and holy God and have now tasted the grace of Christ, they show that same grace to others. They treat the slave as a brother. They treat him with kindness and respect and affection. Because everybody is important in the body of Christ. Even those who might not be important in any other context. So, do you believe that? And does it show up in the way that you treat other people? Number four, and this is, this is the last. This text also teaches us the importance of world missions. Tertius and Quartus know nobody in Rome, and yet they want their brothers and sisters in Rome to know that they love them. Send our love to our brothers and sisters. Is that your heart? Is your heart set on making sure that the nations know the love of the Lord Jesus? We don't have any excuse in our country uh, for not consciously and aggressively supporting world missions. We live in the wealthiest nation on the face of the earth. Um, Our poor people are are wealthy compared to other people in, in other parts of the world. You don't have very much money. You have a lot more than, than, than people in vast portions of the world. Think about this. Here in Romans chapter 16, we meet these two Roman slaves. Two men without status in the ancient world. And they meet Paul. And they meet his co-workers. And through their witness, they also meet Jesus. And their lives are on a whole new trajectory. They have a whole new meaning. Wouldn't you like to see that happen more and more all over this world? So here in our text, an entire Roman household, the the influential master and some of his slaves come to know the Lord Jesus, and now there's an important foothold for the gospel in that dark city. And so we need to pray for those who go out from us with the gospel. We need to give to support those who go out with the gospel. And think about Tertius and Quartus. Number three and number four. Think about their faithfulness to serve Christ even in this very lowly position in that Roman household. They were faithful. Faithful in obscurity. Faithful in humble service. And that's what the Lord calls all of us to as well. So here's number three and number four. And I wonder if they ever thought about what Jesus said That in heaven the first will be last, and the last shall be first. Because as we read this, you wonder where uh, Primus is. Where's number one? Where's Segundus? These guys were number one and number two, and they're not even mentioned in the letter. But here's third string and fourth string. They show up in the letter. So may this example help us to serve the Lord Jesus and His church right now as we are from the calling that we have because as you will see if you go further on all of the glory ultimately goes to the one who saved us the Lord Jesus Himself. And having tasted that grace you should be good with that. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for saving us. Thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, for the reconciliation that we have to you, the peace that we have, because he took, uh, took your wrath on our, our behalf. Thank you for the peace that, uh, that this reconciliation has made between our brothers and sisters. And, uh, and because of this, we, we can tear down the barriers that the world has set up and recognized. Lord, help us to understand this more and more. We pray that your Holy Spirit would take these thoughts and and, and develop them in our, in our thinking. Help us to be more humble as a result of this encounter with you this morning and more willing to serve you in any way that you'd have us to. Pray for the friend who's here today who maybe does not know the Lord Jesus as his Savior and Lord. I pray that you'd change that. I pray that you'd open his heart, grab a hold of him, and, and, and wake him up to his need for the Savior. Wake her up. Do your work. Build your church for your glory and our good. In the name of the Savior, we pray. Amen.